This is retired detective Ralph Friedman of the NYPD, author of Street Warrior and star of Street Justice, The Bronx on Discovery. And you're listening to Mike Sappho Podcast. Let's roll. What's going on, detective? How you doing? Thank you for bringing me to your police museum that also functions as your house. Here's my home uh, office, den, police museum. Well, you gave us a tour of this place. Forget about the gym, and you're looking buff as always, but this room in here, can you describe the room we're in? We'll do a video later on, but what, what exactly is this room right now? Well, this is actually my den office. It uh, has my awards on display and a lot of police memorabilia. It's a pretty large room. It's 16 by 16, so and I have all the walls full of police stuff, NYPD things. Now, you're a legend in the police world, and you became a legend in the world's most famous department. So I'm humbled to have you on. It's actually a pleasure well, to have. Thank you for having me on. And I brought two NYPD police officers with me. You want to introduce yourself, guys? Yeah, I'm Eddie Thompson. I'm uh, Luke Bannock. And I want to bring them for more of a police maybe aspect and hear their views and stuff later on. But I'm really humbled to have you on. I just finished your book, Street Warrior. When you decide to write the book, what was your uh, intentions? And it just, was it cool reliving all those memories? Oh, yeah, it was, it was real cool. I had all the paperwork, because so, you have to supply all the documentation. And they have lawyers and fact-finding teams, too. But um, I got hooked up with a writer who, ironically, I still haven't met in person. We talk on the phone. I know when we're going on three years, and we talk every day. And when we were doing the book, we did the whole book by telephone and email. It's like an online dating relationship, Ralph. That's what you have going on. <laughs> and he was a retired officer, and he worked in the same area as me in the same time. So it was very easy working with him because I didn't have to, if I was working with a civilian, I would have had to explain a lot of the police lingo. And he was, uh, you know, privy to all that stuff. He lived it and worked it. His name was Pat Piccarelli. And uh, it was a, two, a little over two-year project, but it was actually six months of writing. The rest is editing contracts, you know, dealing with the publishers and stuff. And it, it came out pretty good, and we're doing very well with it. It came out really good. So give the plug for it, Street Warrior. Just give the whole plug for it. Well, Street Warrior is the name of the book by myself and Pat Piccarelli, and it's available on Amazon.com and also in bookstores like Barnes & Noble. It's great. I start reading the book, and you just graduated the police academy, and you're sent to the South Bronx, the, for, the 41st Precinct. And I'm thinking, who the fuck did this guy piss off? And then I read you wanted to go to the 4-1. Who wants to go to the South Bronx in the well, 70s? you know, you're young and you, you want to be a police officer and uh, you want to play in the major leagues. You know, first of all, you're in the NYPD. Yeah, you, you, didn't, want- you didn't do the double-A, triple-A. You went right to the pros. <laughs> you went right to Yankee Stadium. <laughs> well, you want to go to what they call a, a, a house. Mm-hmm. Or police terms, it was a shit house. Mm-hmm. But it was a place where all the action is. And if you're going to work there for a year... It's like doing 15, 20 years in another precinct with what you see. And it was a lot of fun. It was a, a lot of excitement. You know, I had an adrenaline rush my whole time on the job. And it was a place to be. Now, give me and the listeners a normal routine day. Because I know you did anti-crime. You became a obviously highly decorated detective. Give me a normal day routine patrol in the 41st precinct in 1972. Okay, well, if you came into work, like I started off like any other officer working uh, foot patrol, and then you graduate to a, a radio car. But uh, it's what you see in here, it's just amazing. And when you come into work, I'll give you an example. When I was got to a radio car, probably the end of 71, around 71, 
you go in on a Friday, Saturday night, and you get the car with the light and siren on, and you drive with the you're backed up with twenty jobs already, heavy jobs, <clears throat> you know, like robberies, ten thirties, assaults, shots fired, and uh, you're rolling right away with the light and siren on, and you stay that whole way for four to twelve. You never shut the light and siren off. It's amazing. I mean, I don't know if it could be comprehended in today's world of civilians or policing, but it, it was a Wild West show. You're driving around, you're hearing shots fired everywhere, It's uh, and you're responding to heavy jobs that are founded jobs. Full- People are shot on the streets, stabbed, laying around, junkies. It's a hotbed of activity. You guys led the... NYPD and homicides, is that? Yes, every year. Well, congratulations on that uh, distinctive award, I guess. <laughs> the 4-1, why was it called Fort Apache? Well, before I got there, say it was around the uh, mid to late 60s, because I got there the beginning of 70. But uh, the precinct came under attack a lot. And at one point, there was a lieutenant there, a black lieutenant by the name of Lloyd Gittins, uh, who was like a real drill sergeant type of guy. I would never hurt a cop, but he was a you know very uh, straight laced uh, military type guy, and he was on the desk when one of these times when the precinct was under attack, <clears throat> and he was calling uh, headquarters, the borough office, and in his uh, screams for help for the backup for the precinct, he screamed, "We're under attack! It's like Fort Apache here," <laughs> and some officers that were in the house heard the name, and it sort of stuck and. That was it from that moment on. You know, it was Fort Apache indicating that this precinct was under attack. And the logo for the precinct was like an old fort house <laughs> with uh, arrows stuck in it, which I have tattooed on my chest. Yeah, you got a couple of tattoos. I want to get to them in a little bit. Now, in the book, you there's a few stories I want to hit on because there's a few stories that as you're reading it, as you turn the page, you're on the edge of your seat. Give me one story that didn't make the cut of the book that you're proud of. One story that didn't make that didn't the- make the book. You did it 14 years. I know you got a story that didn't make the book. That's good. Well, I have a lot of stories. <laughs> uh, well, there's a, there's a story on tomorrow night's show. I have a, a series on TV now. Called, it's on Discovery. Brand new in, uh, episodes every Tuesday night at 9 o'clock. And uh, it's called Street Justice, the Bronx. And tomorrow night's story is a new one. So I can't really say too much. <laughs> Because it wasn't in the book. And it's a, a really good one. What I'll tell you is, I'm going to go after a street gang. You know, and it's a, a really good story on a notorious street gang called the uh, Savage Skulls. And the book, because I really I recommend the book to any cops I know, military, or anybody who wants to read an adrenaline story about the 70s in New York City, which is the epicenter of drugs and murder and stuff. Your book starts off really intense. You go into a job, and that's when you... You killed your first person yep. on this job, and your partner got shot in it. Can you just tell us? Because you really you told it so intensely in the book. Can you just give us a overview well, of that job? I always hated to do day shifts. Mm-hmm. And this day, I was assigned to court. I had to go to court. It was sometimes I can't avoid court, making as many collars as I did. <laughs> Hopefully, I used to plead out, but I had to go in this day. So anyway, I'm doing a day shift, and I got out of court early, say around noon. And I go back to the precinct. And there's the daytime anti-crime unit working. But my partner wasn't working. Now, another officer came back, and he had no partner that day also. He was in my unit. His name was Cal Unger. 
So I knew of him, and I worked with him here and there, but he wasn't my uh, regular partner. So the boss put us together, team up, and to go out on patrol. And it was a pretty quiet day at the time. We responded to a, a few jobs, backup offices, which is common. Even though you work in anti-crime and not supposed to uh, respond to 9-11 calls, you're supposed to do your own pickups, which we do. But if it's a heavy job, we back up units because that's what NYPD does. So uh, we were driving around in his, uh, we used private vehicles then, and he had a Volkswagen Bug, and we used his car for patrol. And we stopped a few gang members, we broke up a few fights, responded to a few jobs, uh, we followed a few suspicious people. They might mug somebody or break into a car. But it was, you know, 2 o'clock in the day, and it was a, you know, winter day. So then we heard a radio call come over the air of a burglary in progress. And a radio call picked it up, and we decided to back them up. But we happened to be closer so we responded and got there first. So we started up the stairs, and when we got into the building on the third floor, the job was on the top floor, of course. You know, that was routine. <laughs> Never the first floor. Never the first floor. I actually, I was once thinking of naming the book Top Floor, because <laughs> you always get a job that's always on the top, and there's no elevators. Besides, you're not supposed to take an elevator. So anyway, we go upstairs, and while we're going up, getting higher up on the steps, we start to hear a female screaming. And then there was some quiet, and we got up to the fifth floor, and we saw a door open about five or six inches, and we saw the frame broke. So it was easy to surmise that someone broke in, and now we hear the girl screaming again. So we draw our weapons, and we proceed into the apartment. And it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon, but it was pitch black in there. They had curtains and sheets up and papers, and everything was covering the windows, and no lights on. It was, it was pitch black. And our eyes didn't adjust immediately. And then we heard more screams coming from the rear of the apartment. So we proceeded cautiously. And because it was dark, we didn't know our way around, which rooms were where. But we were going where the voice, the sound of the voice was. And as soon as we got within about, say, three or four feet from the door uh, of the rear bedroom, a guy jumps out and just started firing us. We were under fire right away. Really, we couldn't see him because actually wound up he was black and he was topless. He had no shirt on. And all we started firing was the muzzle flash. And uh, he, returned, he was firing at us. We were firing him. And it was in a small hallway. And these bullets were ricocheting also. But my partner took direct hits immediately. And I saw him going down in the peripheral vision. Uh, he went down. He was still firing at the guy. And the perp was literally three feet in front of me now, and we're exchanging all our rounds. And uh, we, we fired, at that point, about 16 rounds, plus they're ricocheting on the hallway. Because at the end, my partner took five bullets, two of them, and he took two more bullets that were ricochets, which when we got to the hospital were removed by tweezer because they were just under his uh, skin, in his back and in his forearm. But five bullets found their mark in his torso. And... um the, the shooter tried to run past me, at which time I grabbed him with my left hand on his trap, and I was strong enough to be able to hold his trap, and he ran into me with a gun in his hand, and I had my gun pressed against his body, and I fired the last round I had, and that took him down and killed him right there. Oh. And my partner, he was shot in the sack of the heart that holds fluid under the heart, 
and some other vital organs, and he was rushed to the hospital. And we didn't wait for an ambulance. Other officers responded because they were right behind us. And I picked up a radio after he was shot and called it in at 1013, officers shot. And the officers were there in a second. And we carried him down, and then we proceeded to put him into a radio car. But then we found the radio car was blocked in because all the units responding. And all oh. the officers. So the guy in the, in the radio car that was driving was, you know, we couldn't find the drivers. People couldn't get to the cars fast enough. He started bumping into cars with the radio car, banging them out of the way. And during this time, we also radioed to other precincts and highway patrol to block every intersection. Because even with your light and siren on, you race to a, you do in your mind slow down even a fraction for an intersection because, you know, you're entering an intersection with a red light and you don't want to have an accident and have more injuries or killings. So they didn't have to think. They drove blindly through every intersection because we had radio cars blocking them by highway patrol and then the 4-3 and other precincts. And we were able to get the officer to the hospital immediately to get him surgery. And he made medical history right away by taking 72 pints of blood in three hours. Oh you only hold about seven or eight pints of blood. So you can imagine, as fast as they were pumping blood into him, it was spilling out all over the uh, operating floor. But the bottom line was they, we saved his life, and the doctors and nurses saved his life by uh, getting him there that fast. Now, how much time on the job did you have when this happened? I had approximately two years. When you, you were in anti-crime two years, which is a huge yeah. accomplishment because anti-crime... Well, I got into anti-crime in about 18 months on. And when this happens, does this fuck with you at all, mentally? Or I, and Listen, we, I know I speak to a lot of cops. It's part of the job. But did, now you have two years on, you're in your mid-20s. That, does that fuck with you? You took a life? Well, or? it didn't bother me that okay. I took a life. You know, uh, it's always not a good thing to take a of life, but it didn't bother me at all. Because I felt I saved the civilian's life, I saved my partner's life, and my own. If my partner, if I didn't stop this perpetrator from shooting, mm-hmm. another bullet or, you know, could have been the, uh, the hair that broke the camel's back, the straw that broke the camel's back. And he was trying to kill me and my partner, and we saved the civilian. So, I mean, it's a good feeling in a way. And of you course, know, you saved lives. I that mo- moment that I was able to, uh, you know, come to the calling, you know, prove my mettle, took this guy out, and saved lives. Rookie cop in the 70s, you're brand new. What's the best piece of advice a veteran officer gave you? Was it one piece of advice that really stuck in your mind like, okay, I'm going to... Well, I would say always be combat ready. You know, it's all these incidents you read about in the newspapers, on you see on the news. Uh, you know, police do routine things, but they're not routine. Any second uh, could turn deadly, you know, and you got to be ready. This is a serious job that... Uh, I mean, you could do nothing for eight hours, and one second later, your life has changed. You know, and uh, proof of that also, you know, that was, uh, the people could see is like 9-11. I mean, one second, everybody's on patrol, and then hundreds of thousands of people are running in one direction, and you got the police going in the other direction to save lives and put their lives on the line. And this is where I want Luke and Eddie to jump in, but how does Ralph Freeman... And all the cops in the 4-1 and all over Manhattan, the Bronx, deal with policing these days. Would you guys even be able to? It's a completely different world with the cell phones, with the body cameras. Would it just give you a completely different ballgame? How would you guys even function back then? Well, how would you function back then or now? Now, with all the cell phones and all that stuff. Well, I don't think I would have had the career I had. 
uh, I think I could have lasted about 30 minutes on patrol, man. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's a different world. You know, now I'm retired 34 years already. I started 50 years ago. I started as a trainee in January of 68. So in a couple of months, we're talking 50 years ago. They didn't even invent cell phones weren't invented. Beepers weren't even invented. We were just starting. They, we didn't, when I first started, we didn't even have portable radios. And if we did, they didn't work. You know, <laughs> Today's policing, uh, I tell you, how do men and women do it today is beyond me. I mean, you get this, the public should be thankful that there's men and women that want to go out there, and they want to go out there and do the job. And it's a thankless job. You have no backing from the uh, politicians or the hierarchy of the police department. You got everybody wants to hang you. You go, an officer goes in to buy a slice of pizza and there's 50 cameras. Everybody's a filmmaker with today's video. And it's, uh, I think it's, it's going to hurt the public. It has already, in my opinion, mm-hmm. because I think officers don't want to be sued. They don't want to be arrested. They don't want to lose their benefits. Uh, everybody's against them. And they're only out there to help the public. And uh, I think eventually it's going to hurt the officers because they're going to hesitate. And in this job, you cannot hesitate. You need reflex in your training to kick in immediately when you're in a life and death situation. And if cops are thinking, oh, how am I going to be perceived on camera? Uh, You know, am I going to be viewed at... Uh, the wrong way, or or is it going to be edited and maybe just gonna say the, that, the one minute clip turns into you know, nine seconds? They show cops punching somebody, but they don't show that they don't turn on the camera until after the guy punched the cop, and the cop's only affecting an arrest or defending himself, or they're doctored or they're photoshopped or all the technology today. It's just bullshit. You know, you can't you believe nothing of what you hear and half of what you see. It's ironic you said that because the front page, I think, of the post today, it says cop out. And it says that cops in the Bronx are not doing – they're doing their job and they're doing it heroically. But they're taking a step back and not being as proactive as you guys were. They're being more reactive. They don't want police to be proactive. That's that's out the window. And that's where you guys strive. Is that correct? Of course. I'll give you an example. Me having a hunch or a gut feeling. Now, this is how we work. Okay. You were – you were trained, you're out on the streets, you start to get experience, and uh, you get gut feelings, you get a sixth sense, and you follow a guy and you see him hefting something or adjusting something, and he winds up he's carrying a gun. That's, that's damn good police work. That's what you're out there for, to stop people from carrying guns because those guns are going to be used against civilians or other police officers. Today, if you get a gut feeling and you search a guy, you're violating someone's rights. They changed the ball game. They changed the rules. Now, a cop that was doing great work that you would get a pat on the back for or an attaboy, now they want to have you lose your job, give you charges, arrest you, sue you. It's an up, that upside down to every world. You know, a cop can't do his job correctly today. And yet there's men and women that want to go out and do it anyway. On the chances of not, not only getting hurt, maimed, or killed by perpetrators, but being arrested, fined, uh, lose your job, prosecuted. But there's officers are dedicated that still want to do it. People should be thankful. Well, Ralph, I just want to say it's uh, it's an honor to be sitting next to you right now um, as a fellow cop. And uh, oh, thank you. you to, to Appreciate us, to pretty much every cop out there. You're pretty much a you know a hero. Like we see what you do. Um, I've seen your show, and it's just I feel like I'm watching something that's surreal. 
I'm just sitting in your room right now. I see all your awards. It's just amazing. I mean, we'll take a picture of it so everybody else can see it, but it's actually amazing. Um, when they say, you know, cops say I got a rack or whatever. I mean, after seeing your rack up there, <laughs> how many awards do you have exactly? Because it's unbelievable. Like, I got a 219 from the police department and a little over 40 from civilian organizations. But, you know, I don't consider myself a hero. I think that 99% of cops would respond to do the same thing I did. I just happen to be one of these guys that are always out there. And I don't know if you say I'm in the right place at the wrong time or in the wrong place at the right time or whatever. I just fall into stuff. But, I mean, as far as when I had to take uh, deadly physical force or really serious police actions, I feel other officers would do the same thing. I just happen to be in those positions. You know, men and women are out there. They risk their lives. And I, I think the decent, hardworking people appreciate cops all the time. I think it's a small percentage of people that are very loud that make all the headlines, you know, like uh, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. The squeaky wheel gets oil, you know. And these people that are against police are very loud. I think it's a small group, but they get all the attention, you know. And... Uh, I think some of these politicians, uh, they cater to voting blocks, you know, and if there's a lot of perpetrators that vote, they'll go for them. They go for their vote. But uh, the public and everybody should be thankful that there's police officers that are willing to do this job. This is a dangerous job. This is not a job you get a chance to do it over. Uh, we were talking about earlier on the way here about how um, how many off-duty arrests you had, So which nowadays, obviously, every cop's uh, scared to death to, you know, do anything off-duty because, you know... It's, you pretty much, you know, now, you, now you're going to sit down with the duty captain and the whole nine yards. I don't know, back in the day, what was the difference? Uh, when you made an off-duty arrest, was it questions? Like, or you just bring them in and it was like, now you're back on the clock? Well, I was back on the clock. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. But uh, all kidding aside, you know, uh, if I saw any crime, uh, you know, as long as it was a crime, like a, a serious misdemeanor or a felony, you know, I wasn't stopping people for traffic or you know, uh, <laughs> slapping someone around. It had to be serious. But I ran into them. And, you know, I think it also had to do with uh, my look. You know, I always worked out. You know, I'm old now. I'm close to 70. But I was always in phys- good physical shape like you. Thank you. Know? you. And I had tattoos. <laughs> and, you know, I had tattoos and I rode a motorcycle. You know, uh, I-, I had that look. And I was a neighborhood guy that hung on the streets too. You know, and... This created a, a, a scenario where people would come over to me and always try to sell me drugs or guns, you know. And also, I hung out on the street. So, you know, I ran into shootings. I mean, I, made, I locked up people for shootings, guns, homicides, off-duty, you know. And it, I don't know, one le- arrest led to the other. Next thing I know, I made over 100 in the course of my career. We heard that you love to do uh, paperwork and go to meetings. <laughs> yeah, I'm big on that. <laughs> <laughs> I hated paperwork and I hated meetings. But it came with the tor- territory, just like getting some lumps and bumps. You know, I, I mean, I always accepted uh, line-of-duty injuries. You know, I had b- over 50 broken bones until the end of my career. The last one was 23 broken bones in one shot. But uh, that comes with the territory. But I, I tried to circumvent a few of those things. Ralph, when I told my friends and uh, when Eddie and Luke were telling people in the precinct that you were coming on the show, they were like, oh, he was on the show Top Cops. So I go on YouTube and I look up this Top Cops, and I want you to tell a story. You're going to tell it better than me, but you're on a date, you and your brother, who was also a police officer, you're on a date with two hot chicks, <laughs> and tell us what happens, and I want to know. Uh, I was out the, with my brother. Right. 
I only had like uh, just a little over four years on the job. And I was in anti-crime. And I had experience already. And my brother was a transit police officer at the time who later became a highly decorated transit officer and NYPD during the merge. But this was back in 1974. So he just came on the job, and I had four years. Because we're four years apart, and he followed me on to the department then. So uh, we were out with two girls, and we were just coming home, and we were heading up to the apartment. And uh, I moved out. It was where my family lived. But at this point, my brother was living there. So we went back to the neighborhood, and... Uh, I went in to get a newspaper, and when I got back into the car, I noticed uh, a couple of guys hanging out. It was like three guys hanging out at the uh, newsstand. I knew they didn't look right, and I informed my brother of this, and we started watching them, and we got he got the same feeling. And we decided to tell the girls to go upstairs, we pulled the car around the block, we got out of the car, and we started to stake out the place from about half a block away, and keep them under observation. And they, it was a cold night in the winter, and uh, they were definitely up to no good. And our gut feeling paid off. You know, uh, after about 25 minutes, we saw one of them pull out a sort-off shotgun from under, a sort-off rifle from under their coat, and another guy pull out a weapon, and they started to go into the candy store. So at that point, we knew what was going down, and we decided to rush them and interrupt the robbery so that a civilian wouldn't be injured. And uh, they drew the guns on us, and we tackled them, and one of them ran away, and we caught them. And we wound up placing them under arrest and recovering the weapons. And uh, the two girls were watching this from uh, upstairs. <laughs> and as we were cuffing them, a 5-0, this happened in the 5-2, by the way, where we lived, and where I later got assigned as a detective, but I was still in 4-1 at the time. And just as we were cuffing them, a 5-0 precinct anti-crime uh, unmarked taxi was driving by, and they assisted in the uh, cuffing and couldn't believe that we were two off-duty <laughs> cops, you know. He said, this is what you guys do on a Saturday night? Ralph, the question is, did you get laid after? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but there was a lot of paperwork for it. <laughs> hey, now let me ask you. I rushed the paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, your brother's the worst swing man because I don't know how you cops would do it because I would be like, nah, those guys are fine. If there's two chicks with me, I'm like, no, those guys are good. They probably work in the deli over there. Your, <laughs> your brother was the worst swing man. In, in that class- I'll tell you another story <laughs> yeah. about Let me tell you another story that I did with my brother. That was, and we had girls with us. We went to a, we were off duty, of course, again. Uh, we went to a boxing match. It was like a Golden Gloves thing, but it was a local thing. Okay. And it was over on Arthur Avenue in the Bronx, you know. So... Me and my brother and two girls are there, and uh, we're both on the job at the time. And some guys come in, they're passing us in the seating area, and they pushed my brother, you know, more than I think he had to be pushed, you know. And uh, so I pushed the guy when he got towards me, you know, give him a little lesson in his own, uh, <laughs> own thing, you know. But what I didn't know or my brother, or the girls with, that he had 20 friends sitting behind us. You know? And these were folding chairs, which we found out all came on our heads. And next thing I know, we were battling, and I see my brother climb into the ring, and he's knocking guys out of the ring, and I'm trying to climb into the ring, and we get hit over the head with more chairs and stuff. And there's like 20 of them and two of us, and the girls got... Uh, 
knocked to the ground. We all got banged up. And uh, I got all banged up too. And uh, I see my, I'm climbing into the ring and I get jumped. But two guys pull me out and start hitting me. And I'm getting pummeled with chairs. And I see my brother get hurt over the head with a chair after he knocked two guys out of the ring. And uh, uh, police are responding and the whole place is in uh, shambles. And we were the main bout, wound up being the main bout there. <laughs> and uh, next thing I know, I'm reaching for my gun and I couldn't find my gun. And the police respond and they break up the whole thing and everybody get clears out. And a sergeant walks over to me and says, oh, by the way, is this yours? And he hands me my gun. <laughs> Thank God I didn't lose my gun. We, both, we wind up in Jacoby Hospital, which wasn't far. My brother winds up getting about six, six stitches in his head. And uh, uh, I'm all lumped and bruised, and we're both, like, bloodied up and everything. We get it treated and released out of the hospital, and we head back to my uh, brother's place. And uh, we were still with the two girls. But this thing didn't end that good. We didn't get laid. Oh, we started that was watching question was- pornos, <laughs> the four of us, and uh, we were just all too beat up to even move. You know, we couldn't. Couldn't do anything. <laughs> I guess I got a question. Was this the last double date with your brother? Because they seemed to end off. No, we had a few others. Actually, went to the Yankee Stadium and make a couple of collars, too. <laughs> we were off duty. Wound up making a robbery collar. We're coming out of the stadium, and a, a guy, we see some guys, uh, you know, pretty much shaken up. And we ask him what happened. We see these other guys running away, and uh, they stole his watch and money. And me and my brother made that apprehension. When, because I know a lot of police officers and stuff, and now they're, you know, if you make too many arrests, you're called Buffy or you're this. When you were making this in the 70s, not that it was encouraged, but did anyone like give you shit about it? Like, hey, bro, come on, you're going out. Was it like. No, no, it was a different world. Like I said, you, it's the only they thing they had more. There, I mean, we were always being investigated. Mm-hmm. They started a thing <laughs> called uh, uh, the Freedman IAB. <laughs> it was a violent prone list, and I spent my career on it. You know, I was always on the violent prone list because. You know, I used a lot of violence, but I was dealing with violent criminals. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you know, how do you stop a bad guy with a gun? You need a good guy with a gun. You know, and if a guy... Listen, police officers don't have that many choices to make. They make an arrest. It's the perpetrator that has all the choices. If he wants to run, if he wants to fight, if he wants to surrender, if he wants to shoot, if he wants... You know, they make... They have the balls in their court. But... They got to live with the results. You know, if they want to shoot at a police officer and they get shot and killed, it's on them. Mm-hmm. You know, the police officer didn't make the choice. You know, just like that Eric Gardner case. You know, that's a big case that's up now. I watched that video over 100 times. Okay. That officer acted 100% correctly. And I, I, what he did, I did 100, I did over 500 times. He t- it was a takedown hole. It was not a choke hole. It wasn't illegal. That's why he wasn't indicted. That's why he'll never be indicted, and the feds aren't going to get him because he acted properly. No, that guy resisted arrest, and nobody kicked him. Nobody hit him when he was down. They cuffed him. Everything was proper procedure. And the public, not the public, but certain groups are making a big case out of nothing. Mm-hmm. It was a takedown hole of someone who resisted arrest. Again, a pleasure to be here. It's it's amazing to to have you. Well, thank you. I, oh, sorry, Ralph. I think he was talking to you. Sorry, Ralph. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you might have been talking to both of us. So um, I also read another police book, Circle of Six. Great book. You were um, on the job in the seventies. Yes. What was the difference in the job before the Philip Cardillo incident and then after? Well, it seems like that was a turning point where politicians sort of got involved with police matters because. Uh, that Charlie Rangel responded, and uh, 
some politics went on. There was no crime scene. They didn't hold. They had like 18 or 20 uh, suspects or witnesses or people present at the time of the incident. Uh, that was one of the biggest black eyes in the NYPD history, that they uh, didn't have a crime scene. It wasn't investigated property, properly. And uh, thank God the detectives that responded uh, carried it on much further. Randy Jorgensen and uh, Sonny Grasso, I think, was involved in it. Mm -hmm. uh, they did a great job, you know, recreating that scene, making a crime scene in a studio. Uh, they did it on their own. Uh, and there was some trials, but uh, the guy got off. You know, it was a terrible thing, and a terrible time in policing. Well, how was it going back to work after that? Well, you know, morale was low. You know, there's, you know, police have a lot of ups and downs. A lot of times there's low morale, just like when we have a mayor that we have right now. You know, you know, you know he has a disdain for police. And, uh, you know, he was collared a couple of times for protesting. So you know where his head is at. And he let that know, be known the minute he took office with telling his uh, son to beware of the police. Yet he has police protecting him. You know, uh, you know, that's, you know, it comes with the territory again. You know, these are things that, you know, you go out there, police and men and women are trying to do a great job. And uh, they got to take their lumps and bumps in different ways. You know, and politicians being against them. You know, right now it's a big thing. Back then it came and went. It wasn't as bad, but it seems to be getting much worse today. Now, what do you think about, um, like, Comstat? Like, they didn't have Comstat, obviously, when you were... Uh, no, we didn't have Comstat, but do we you think had, that affects... Well, like, just explain what Comstat well, is Comstat, to people who are non-cops. Comstat is basically statistics of every single crime, every single summons that's written. I mean, basically, everything that happens is documented. Um, and I just basically, in your opinion, do you think that helped or uh, deterred people from doing well, things Well, from what I understand, Comstat was after my time. And I know a few bosses and who went to, who go to Comstat and who went to Comstat. Comstat is a good tool, but they sort of made it into where they're uh, really like, uh, you know, coming down very hard on bosses. You know, they embarrass them. You know, it shouldn't be used that way. And the bosses have no choice but to come back and come down hard on the police officers, you know, like shit rolls downhill, you know, and the police are at the bottom of the totem pole. And uh, they shouldn't be abusing bosses. It should be used as a tool to, uh, you know, follow and track crime. We had something, now I would say it was like the beginning of Comstat. What we had back then, uh, we had guys in the precinct that would use pinpoint maps and what would they do is they follow the crime reports and make a map and see what days, hours, and locations the most crime was occurring and the type of crime. Then they would give it to the uniform officers to pay special attention, and they would give it to plainclothes guys and anti-crime to stake out those locations. If people were coming home uh, on a certain train station, say, and between 5 and 7, they're getting mugged and We'd want to be there. So you'd have police patrolling to deter it, and you'd have anti-crime there to see if you could catch them in action and be able to testify against them and put them away. So it was like a, what we call pinpointing crime, which was like similar to how they use Comstat, just that today they have computers and they call the bosses in and make it a citywide thing. But it shouldn't be used to uh, downgrade and uh, harass bosses. 
it should be a, a policing tool that we all use and help the public and help catch these bad guys and take them off the street. Something I saw that was actually pretty funny in your last episode, I believe, it was when you were going after that, um, for that guy for the rapes. Um, he's like a serial rapist, and you snatched up somebody off the street, handcuffed him, brought him into the precinct, and you guys didn't even know if it was him or not, but you thought it matched the description. And I just, in this day and age, if we were to do that, forget it. We'd be fucking sued, um, look for a new job, and, you know, probably on the front page of the newspaper because, you know, you know, profiled in the whole nine yards. And I just thought it was well, that's, a different way of policing back then, which I thought, you know, was it, it is. It was a different way of policing. And that's how you find leads and uh, that possibly could have been the guy. And yeah. then we would have caught him. You know, you, we're protecting the public. This is what police do. And, you know, I don't consider it violating someone's rights. And I don't think the public should take it that way if a police officer is doing his job. They complain if you sit back and do nothing. And they complain if you're... Uh, you go out there and stop people. Yeah, you know, you which can't win. Which am I that you guys did end up catching the guy. We did catch the guy. It was like guy. catching a needle in a haystack, uh, finding a needle in a haystack. It was, uh, but that was a very serious uh, rapist out there. Very serious. That's a very heinous crime, rape. Now, sitting here with Ralph Friedman, author of Street Warrior, the true story of NYPD's most decorated detective and the era that created him. You're mentioning now you some police officers would be afraid to get sued and stuff. Ralph, you got into a shootout with uh, George Carter. Was his name? And you shot him, you guys, however you want to describe it, I forgot in the book exactly, uh, Eddie and Luke killing stereotypes, but of course they didn't read the book. When you shot him, you ran down and you arrested him and there was no gun found, but yet it was you got shot at, you killed a guy with a gun, no gun was found. Now you'd be, your job's over right now, right? Well, there was other factors in here to prove that he had a gun. Uh, first off, in that story, I had a civilian witness who described the gun to a T and knew the guy, and uh, we went to his house to place him under arrest for a robbery. And he wound up, uh, his wife opened the door, or girlfriend, and said he wasn't there. But we heard the window opening, and we charged into the apartment, and he lived over a taxpayer roof, which is a one-story roof of a, of a business. And he jumped off the fire escape onto that roof, and then he jumped from there down to the street, which is a pretty hefty jump, <clears throat> but if you're running for your freedom, <clears throat> this is what perpetrators do. And when we were ready to go off the roof, we were screaming to him, police, freeze. He didn't want us to do follow him, and he turned around and pointed a gun at us, in which case me, I fired a shot, and my partner fired a shot, and we saw him go down. And at this point, we didn't feel we had to jump off a roof and risk our uh, safety, so we raced out of the apartment and ran around. By the time we hit the street, the gun was gone. Now, we had emergency service responded, along with other officers, of course, and a, a thorough search of the area was conducted, and they found like about six or eight other guns. But we had testified they weren't the guns. You know, we weren't making up a story. <laughs> How great is the Bronx that they do a you search know, and they find six, eight guns? And, oh, no, these, this know, wasn't the gun that was shot at the cops. It wasn't the gun either. <laughs> and we weren't going to lie and say that was the gun because it wasn't. And we followed up immediately, uh, police officers and detectives and ourselves, in searching the apartment. And uh, first thing we found in his nightstand, right next to his bed, were bullets that matched the gun that we described and that the civilian complainant described. So now we have bullets in his nightstand that matched. We had a civilian complainant plus our two testimonies. And to further, we went through his closets 
And in those days, we didn't have Facebook, of course. <laughs> but there were photo albums where people took pictures. And they were still brilliant Polaroids. perpetrators that took Polaroids of themselves <laughs> posing with guns and drugs. You know, they were very intelligent people. And here we have pictures in his uh, album with the gun that we saw. And <laughs> the civilian uh, witness saw that got robbed. So that was also admitted into evidence. So now we have pictures of him with the gun. We got bullets with the gun. We got a civilian witness, and we have two officers that have spotless records. Uh, and this solidified everything and made it justified uh, why we had to use deadly physical force and that uh, his actions and his choice led to his demise. I just wanted to ask you, uh, as cops, we all have that one arrest that like stands out above all, like not maybe a feeling of satisfaction, but a feeling like, you know, I, I actually did something. This, this one arrest made a difference. Uh, what was that for you? Well, um, anytime I had to use deadly physical force, which was a f quite a few times, I felt I was justified, and I felt that I saved a, a life, either being a civilian, my partners, or my own. And those, those make you feel proud that you did something. People look at the downside that, you know, uh, a life had to be taken or someone got shot, but the other side of the coin is that you're saving people. There's a reason why you had to use deadly physical force against somebody. Uh, another case that comes to mind also was I took a, a bank robber off the streets that was uh, wanted by the FBI and was on the loose. He broke out of federal prison two times, and he owed over 40 years. And uh, this was in California. He broke out of federal jail. And then they got apprehended again and broke out of federal jail in Pennsylvania. And I was told that I couldn't catch him. Uh, he was wanted by the FBI. was tracking him for 18 months. And uh, I had a lead on the guy, and it took me under one month, and I apprehended him, me and my partner and my supervisor. I don't want to narrow, you down, uh, narrow your career down to just your deadly shootings because it's way more than those four incidents. But one of the deadly shootings led to like kind of a really fucked up story, like a, basically a dating horror story with the girl Lucy. And well, I, I can't go into that too much because that's an upcoming uh, story on the C TV son series. Son of a bitch. Well, we got to read the book because <laughs> without getting into it, that Lucy Santiago story. I still got to get some people to buy the yeah. book. And you got to watch the show. <laughs> the Lucy you Santiago know. story is the reason to buy the book. And it's like it's a, the most cautionary tale I've ever heard. Like it, it was that, that part of the story and the Francis Tavern. I don't know if you want to talk about either of those. We well, don't have I, to. Let's just say I have some very big cases, and it's worth reading the book and watching the series. Mike's trying to single-handedly kill your series. No. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let, let's go to your brother, Stu. You're uh, the worst wingman ever, who's the biggest cock block on you, not, not getting you late on these dates. No, no what, I was the one who was first spotted the guy. <laughs> um, how long did Stu do on the job? And he tragically got shot at, yes. like off-duty. So how did you deal with – one of your ex-partners actually got killed in the line of duty – Partners got shot. Your brother got shot. How'd you cope with and that? And my mother got mugged. Yeah, and you never caught that guy. No, I didn't catch. You know, sometimes witnesses are very shaken up or and were traumatized, and you know, we had cases like that. Besides my mother's case, and she really couldn't make a proper ID. You know, I brought in a few suspects. Um, actually, they were standing too, and then <laughs> they weren't the guys. But uh, <clears throat> my brother, he went on to be a highly decorated officer, and he got shot in line of duty. And he had a couple of shootings also. And uh, uh, he still has a bullet in his chest. And from that's from the off-duty shooting, wasn't it? Yes. He got shot in the tricep 
blocking a bullet that was meant for his head. And it traveled up his arm and into his chest and it's still there today. See, I really do want to plug the book because the, the, the part of the story when you weren't allowed near the perp they arrested, like you told the, the story, people at the edge of the fucking seat reading this book, like holy shit, police story. And then like you threw in so much natural feelings like you you ex- uh, described how anxious you are and how angry you are and how how you took it so personal man i i love the book it was i read it in two days well man. i would take it personal you know of any cop shot i consider every police officer my brother or sister and this is my blood brother and sister and my brother and me were very close and uh you know i was sh- shooken up mad and i wanted to get this guy and i wanted to make sure my brother was okay too you know it was, uh, you know, a lot of mixed emotions going through. So now that you're famous, um, who's, who's the... Well, I'm not that famous. I've only been doing the show now for two <laughs> who's years. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who's like, a, you know, a celebrity that now that you, you talk to that you would never thought you would talk to in a million years? Mike Scaffold? Besides <laughs> <laughs> Mike, of course. Is <laughs> that the did, right answer? Well, Scaffold, yeah, but that was good. I, I like okay. that answer, Rob. <laughs> no, did you meet anybody through this? Like, like law enforcement people? You did... um. Who showed you? You said you did a... Uh... Well, I did the uh, Pat Dixon crime report, mm-hmm. uh, New York City crime report. And I met his uh, guy who owns the station there, uh, Anthony Cumi. Um, uh, you, know, you know, I met a few people along the way, you know. 14 years, the most decorated detective in the greatest police department in the world. Are you still the most decorated? Uh, as far as I know. Well, we got to look into this. I don't, I'll have to delete this podcast if you're not the most decorated. That'd be a waste of time. <laughs> Well, Mike, like you said, you'd be fired now for the stuff that, <laughs> that you guys did in the 70s, you know? Well, I got uh, 219 awards from the police department, uh, over 40 civilian awards and stuff. And uh, I think I still have that distinction. There's another police officer who made lieutenant, uh, Robert Demartini, who's the most decorated officer, uh, very highly decorated. I, I knew him as a, an officer. I knew him as a personal friend. I used to double date with him, but uh, we didn't make any collars together when we were off duty. But he's a highly decorated officer, the most probably in the country. But uh, thank God he didn't make a detective. <laughs> he would have bumped you right he to second place. Knocked out my award. You would have to do some more double dates with your brother. Catch up. Yeah, I'd have to catch up. But he was a great cop, and as a boss, he uh, led some great units that uh, made a lot of collars. You know, uh, Bobby Demartini. And uh, we were good friends, and we wound up in the same precinct for a while. He came back. He was in the 4-3, and then he went to street crime, I think, and he came to the 4-1 as a sergeant. And uh, But I was in anti-crime then, so we our paths crossed, but we didn't work together. But he was a great, uh, great, great cop. There was a lot of great cops in the 4-1, you know, all my partners, the units I worked in. I mean, uh, the 4-1 was a shithouse, and... Uh, if cops, if even if you want to stay out of it, you were in it. You know, guys, guys that were considered low collar guys made more than other precincts that had high collar guys. Was the camaraderie there just insane? The camaraderie was insane. I mean, that's what made me love the department, and I, that made me feel like uh, when I meet guys from other precincts or other boroughs or other departments, that's how that camaraderie was born and bred in me. You know, it's uh, you know, I still to this day, if I see a guy working alone. I pull over and try to assist them. You know, I back them up. Well, it's, I mean, I've worked in some shitholes. And uh, the few months I did spend working in the Bronx, I would say that's the tightest cops I've seen in the entire yeah, the Bronx city. is very tight. 
And I had another question. Going back to the double dates, because I get yelled at this all the time. And you don't date, so that's and a problem. <laughs> How'd you find those yeah. girls, Ralph? Because I haven't dated. <laughs> How did you, like, like, like I said, I get yelled at this all the time. Going out to eat, facing the door. Always casing locations. Sitting always looking the for an emergency row. exit. How do I get out of here? Worst case scenario. How many days did that ruin for you? Because I know for me, it's ruined no, plenty. No, I tell you, the girls, they accepted. That was my lifestyle. You know what I mean? I mean, uh. I mean, I was lucky enough. You know, I had a lot of girls, and uh, you know, they had to do it my way or the highway. You know? <laughs> seven of them was it? Seven seven girls at one time was it? Well, well that one. was at the end. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's a whole different book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they all met at the hospital at the end. It was uh, that was a little more dangerous than working. The <laughs> but I made like I passed out from the drugs and the pain and the, with know, the one eye winking open. You know? But there was one girl that hung in there. And she was one of the newer ones I was dating. And uh, she outlasted them all, and I'm still with her today. You know, and she really helped me recover because that took quite a few, couple of years. You were, an, you were answering a 1013 job, and you got into this horrendous car accident. You got T-boned by another police officer in a marked vehicle. You're a detective, and you're going there. You've been off the job now 34 years. Does it feel like 34 years? Man, I, I remember entering the academy. I still remember taking the test. It's, it's a flash. I mean... Anybody who has an, uh, any time or anything you do in life, you know, you re- if you have to look forward, if it's a month away, it seems like a long time. But when you look back, your, li- your whole life went by, you know. Yeah, it was a terrible accident. <clears throat> you know, uh, uh, I just got back from a motorcycle trip. I used to do most of the driving, mm-hmm. you know, because I enjoyed driving. And uh, my partner was driving. Oh, I got to say, my partner, Timmy Kennedy, was driving. Okay. Because uh, he, he hates it when I say my partner without saying his name. Oh. You know, but Timmy Kennedy was one of the greatest partners. And uh, I won't say he was one of the greatest drivers. I'm only kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Timmy's he on his was a way great here right now. <laughs> Timmy he got to an accident here. driving here. He lives in Florida, but he came up here to visit me a few weeks ago. And he always he's, breaks my chops a lot that I don't mention his name enough. <laughs> But uh, he was driving. Not that it was his fault. You heard me, Timmy, right? <laughs> but uh, anyway, he's a great guy, great cop. And we were driving. We got a, a 1013, which is an officer in trouble. And, I mean, right away when you get that, there's just no hesitation. You know, you light up that car and you go into a tunnel vision. And this was called in by a police officer. So, I mean, we knew this was a real deal. Not even a chance of it being unfounded or somebody playing a prank or some jerk-offs wanting to see police race to a scene. You know, so this was the real deal. So it was pedal to the metal. And we were driving down uh, uh, Bedford Park, and we were driving uh, west, and we were going to get to the end of the street and turn left, which would put us heading south down to where this 1013 was, that this officer needed assistance. And the radio car was heading south. And before we got to make that left turn to go south, they broadsided us. They T-boned me right on my side. And they came right into my hip. They hit the passenger door. And uh, they never touched the brakes. So you can imagine how fast a radio car is going. Uh, they had zero rubber. So it indicated they never hit the brakes. How fast they were going with light and siren on racing to an officer that needs assistance. Because they were lit up as much as we were. You know, to get there as fast as you And could. the sirens blocking each other and out. The sirens are canceling each other out. And, you know, not that it's either one's fault. Everyone's doing the right thing, but resulted in four of us going to the hospital, three of them being uh, 
having injuries that were not fun injuries. I mean, they all had broken bones, lost teeth, uh, concussions. I mean, everything you could think of, but they were treated and released. And as lucky as I was, I landed in the hospital for a couple of months. I uh, shattered my hip in 100 pieces, broke my uh, pelvic left, right, upper and lower, and broke 23 bones, all ribs. But thankfully, at the time, uh, I was rushed to the hospital fast enough. It took them two hours to get me cut out of the car. It was one of those incidents, if I had a seatbelt on, I would have been killed because the roof came down, the bottom came up, the car folded. They had to cut the fire department was nearby, and the police pulled them off a fire, and they cut me out of the car, which took two hours. And um, uh, I had a lot of support and everything. I had a lot of muscle on me, uh, and that helped because none of the bones moved. I didn't get a surgery or a stitch. I wound up in traction for two months. Couldn't move anything. Hanging off. Because you were in such good shape? Is that? Yeah, that's what saved me. It was like blunt blunt trauma. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had blood. They had me in a surgical unit to go into surgery any minute because they thought I had internal bleeding. They uh, put like a tube in my stomach, came out with blood in it. I remember that distinctly. And it was like all the blood rushed to certain areas. Like it was equivalent to uh, a cop getting shot with a bulletproof vest. The blood races to that spot. That's why your body turns black and blue. But no blood comes out because there's no tear. So what happened, I had blunt trauma just like that to my whole body. Because I got hit with a car instead of a a bullet that's, you know, that would pierce one uh, inch of your body. It was blunt blunt trauma to my whole body. So they kept me in a surgical unit and then the blood dissipated. And I didn't have internal bleeding. But all my bones were broken, and I had to lay there until I healed. And the police department took very good care of me. Uh, they gave me protection 24 hours a day because threats were coming in. And obviously, I wasn't armed. Or could, I couldn't take care of myself. And you're in a hospital, a local guy, so people know who you are. You hospital. made a ton of arrests. Yep. So and, like, oh, let's... But the police department uh, gave me protection 24 hours a day. They gave my mother access to a radio car 24 hours a day. And the girl that was with me, uh, she had a radio call 50% of the time. And uh, the, being in the precinct where I was, p- police were visiting me every minute. It was like uh, Grand Central Station in my room. And uh, the police really helped me when I had to walk with crutches and learn how to walk again. They, if I walked 10 paces, they would make me walk 11. And uh, you know, the support was tremendous. And then emergency service took me home and gave me... Uh, wheelchair and crutches and took me home in their personal ambulance. Uh, then the union, the DEA, gave me a maid and a chauffeur for uh, five hours a day, five days a week. Uh, and everybody took care of me. Great. I mean, that's what I credit to be uh, getting put back together so good. And now when that happened, you were a second grade detective. Yeah. So for people listening, you become a detective. You're a third grade detective. With good work and everything, you get graded. It's called, you go to second grade second detective. Grade. And then obviously the most distinctive one, and there's only maybe 150 total. At that time, there was, well, today there's probably over 300. Okay, it's called first grade detectives. First grade detective. There was only 115. There were 230 second graders. Now, you were in the book, you I said. I was you, already told I was going to get first grade. Now, did they, did they grade you to first grade when you got to the accident? It's kind of like, hey, I know no. you go. They didn't. No. no, I retired as a second grade detective. But I was told before the accident, mm-hmm. earlier in the year, that I was getting uh, first grade around by the end of the year. Because there's a lot of promotions in the police department, usually around Thanksgiving and Christmas. That's when it's, uh, you know, 
traditionally uh, promotions are made. How's your standing with the department now? Do you have any relationship at all besides uh, friends here, friends there? Are you not friends with the brass? Or do they? Well, I have friends that are brass. Okay. I have friends that are retired brass. Okay. I have friends that are um, on the job, off the job. I'm in contact with everybody, and also through social media, you know. And I'm all, I still am always out on the streets, and I meet a lot of people. And uh, my relationship is very good, you know. I'm, I'm obviously between the book and the show, I'm getting more well known. And, you know, it's nice to get recognized. And the guy's giving me a lot of respect, which what, I appreciate because I give them respect. What made you write the book out of nowhere? Well, I actually always wanted to do a book. Okay. And um, I had my stories, but like everything in life, it's uh, timing and who you meet. And I felt the timing was really right because the police were getting a bad rep, you know, for no reason. And, you know, every incident, they're making the police look bad. And uh, my book is very pro-police. Uh, and not only on attention, but because police are great, and they do a great job, so why not pay them homage? So uh, I tell my stories, but I relate the book into today's world of policing, too, and uh, how it would compare. And uh, also, I met the right people to do the book. Through social media, I was introduced to a writer who was also a police officer, like I mentioned earlier, but had experience writing books. This was my first experience. He already had like six or seven books published, which I read two of them, and they were excellent. So I was very happy to have him write it. And I wrote, and I, I met the right agent, uh, Frank um, Frank Wyman, and uh, met the right people. And then the, the TV show, uh, met the right people there also. And they read about the book being done, and they read about me in the newspapers. It was just timing and meeting the right people. So um, when, I mean if, the book becomes a movie, who plays Ralph Friedman in a movie? Uh, I hope that's my problem. <laughs> Mike <laughs> Saffron. Figure out who. Well, Mike Saffron. My arm's a little too big. I don't want to embarrass Ralph in his days. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I wish I had that problem one day. You are... Uh... John Cena. <laughs> <laughs> You we're talking a lot about police. Do you talk about anything else? Is it like does it get like do you get annoyed to be pigeonholed as just talking about police over and over no, and over? I mean that's my whole life. You know, I bleed blue and I, I like police work. I I'm out 34 years. I still miss it every day. Believe me, I'd go back tomorrow. Wouldn't last long, yeah. but I would go back tomorrow. <laughs> You'd come off at 30 minutes if you can change <laughs> one thing about the department now or policing these days. What one thing would you want to change the most? Well. I'd like to see the police be supported by the brass. I'd like to see stop and frisk put back in. I'd like to see police be able to be police. You know, I feel they're being handcuffed. And uh, I think the public should they are thankful that there's people, men and women, that still want to do it under these conditions. In my day, you know, the people appreciated you, and the police were happy to do their jobs. Today, I feel morale is low. And they still do their jobs, but they don't feel as good about it because they, they, they're being micromanaged and their jobs are on the line and they're doing the right thing. You know, it's a, it's, you know, everybody, no matter what job you do, like to be appreciated. You know, other jobs have promotions, bonuses, whatever. And being recognized as a police officer is, you know, but today they're being uh, criticized and looked down for and doing it, a good job. And it seems like it's uncool like to like the police. Like It seems like the end thing to do is to be fuck the police, anti-police. With all, it seems like yeah. that's the... It's like if you're pro-police, you're kind of like, whoa, you, you like the police? That's the way they make it seem now, and it's that small minority 
that are so loud, like you said, that makes the police yeah, kind of like the enemy. Out, then you get some uh, assholes like uh, these football players. You know, one, one thing that really burns me up, mm-hmm. this kills me, and it bothers me all my life, is when they call sports people, sports athletes, heroes. That fucking kills me. That, <laughs> you have no idea how that hurts me. You know, you know to me, first uh, responders, doctors, surgeons, police, military, firefighters, those are heroes. You know, sports people are great athletes, but don't call them a hero. They're far by a hero, far from a hero. And what they're doing now really proves my fact. You know, they're fucking, you know, they're great. We all played sports as kids. Mm -hmm. You know, they went on to excel. Okay, they're great athletes, but that's it. They are not heroes. And when the mayors throw them a hero's welcome in the Canyon of Heroes, oh, man, you have no idea. (laughs) They should be having parades for police and firemen every week down there. Give it to a football player who's going to go on one knee. (laughs) And then, sadly, we're doing this. We're taping this the day of the shooting in Las Vegas, and you're reading stories that military guys put their fingers in, in bullet holes. There's a picture on the internet of a, of a military guy has his finger in a bullet hole. That's a fucking hero. They're, this guy's shooting at them. This military well, military's guy's a hero all the time. You know, they're defending our freedoms and giving up their freedoms to go overseas and fight and protect America all the time through history. You know, I give respect to every military. All branches, you know, if they're... Uh, veterans or active you know they're all doing a great job and uh you know you know when they go down on one knee you know these football players and stuff they're disrespecting our country it's not against they're trying to make it like they're against trump or something forget your politics this is for all the servicemen that served through history and gave their lives you know you're disrespecting the flag uh the office of the presidency the country the military it's disgusting you know, I'd give them a knee right in their fucking head. I <laughs> know <laughs> anyway, it seems like a lot of people are agreeing with you. The ratings are down. They're pulling advertisements. Oh, man, I saw up. that ratings down. I saw pictures of the stands. stadiums. Yeah, that I, that makes me feel good. Ratings down. I like that. last week. That shows that civilians are supporting yeah, the country uh, and law enforcement, and they're doing it not vocally. They're just doing, hey, we're not going to the game. They were down 11 percent is a 17%. lot. Seventeen percent. Oh, and then you see the stadiums. The stadiums are half empty. Hey, tell me about the reunion you went to with the four one. Cause, no, that's great. Yeah, in, in the book, you're leading it up now. Uh, let me try to preface this. The book, you you live for the job. The job was your life. You love the job. Life. It loved you back. You love the job. And then it shows how you have like trepidation. You want to go back to a precinct and you, know, you go in. It, it's so you know, cool. Sorry, before I get to the reunion, you know, that, you know, uh, I'm sitting here with two police officers to my left. And, you know, there's guys on the job that all they do is complain, mm-hmm. yeah. you know. But they'll also respond to the job and put their life on the line. And, you know, no matter who complained on 9-11, you saw it in plain view, and there's tapes all over the world of officers running towards the life and death situations and putting their lives on the line. But, you know, as much as they complain, these guys will put their lives on the line. You know, I don't complain. I loved it. I never complained. And I, I, I loved it. it. To me, it was my life. And I know these guys will say, oh, he has no other life. You're right. I had no other life. <laughs> I was a cop. Not only because I believed in it, but I loved it. You know, I got an adrenaline rush like a junkie gets from heroin. I was on a, a drug high of adrenaline that my body produced, and I, I lived for it every day. You know, when I woke up, I made sure I got enough sleep. I ate good before I went to work because I wanted to be fed because I didn't know what I could eat or when I could eat on the job 
or where you could eat. And I worked out before, and I felt combat ready that I was going to a war zone, just like a military man that's out in Afghanistan or somewhere, and it was more than a job. You know, and I was ready to battle, to get hurt, and I didn't want to give my life, but I put my life on the line. You know, I'm willing to take a beating, and I've attacked, I took plenty of them. But I would go out there, and other officers that I worked with did the same thing. This was my job, but it was an adventure, and it was a lifestyle. You know, I didn't just go home, and that's it. And the proof was that I made off-duty collars. <laughs> you know, if I saw a crime, I took an action. I don't know why. I'm not a, I don't consider myself a buff. And I wasn't a gun guy. I didn't collect guns. I didn't go to range. You know, I, I considered a gun a part of my tools, like a, a scalpel belonged to a, a surgeon or a knife to a butcher or basketball to a basketball player. It was, it's a tool of the trade. You know, it's something you need to perform your job. And if I had to use it, I had to use it. And like I said, it wasn't my choice. The bad guys made those choices. And they either had to live or die with that choice that they made. So you're going to that now, and you're going to roll into the reunion now. So now you... You know, the reunion is... They're great. You know, you see guys that, are, you know, thank God they're still around, first of all. We all look older and different. But these are guys that were young, tough cops. You know, these were 4-1 cops. And, you know, you, know, you just think back. You know, it, it hurts me a little to see that we're old, but it makes me feel good to see we're still alive. You know, and still kicking and telling the stories. And the reunions are great. You know, I see some of my old partners there. I saw one of the greatest guys there, Tommy Walker, was, which was our captain, who wrote the book Ford Apache. And I, I, I got to say, he had to be the best boss on the NYPD ever. This was a captain that was out there with you, did patrol, commanded, took control of situations, always had a cop's back, never heard a cop. And that's why he stayed a captain his whole career, because they would never promote him. You know, they felt he was a cop, too. You know what I mean? You know, they wanted him to, you know, hurt cops. He would never do it. This guy was the best boss ever, Captain Tommy Walker. See, I hope more police officers and law enforcement listen to this, because you still speak 34 years, you're up the job, and you still speak with such enthusiasm and such love I for the listen. job. Yeah, I like go back tomorrow. You know, I'm too old and too slow, but... Uh, you're in good shape. You're, 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 you're in better shape probably 50% of the people out of the department. <laughs> I would so. love to go out there and do it again, but I wouldn't last. It's, I'm considered a dinosaur. You heard the word dinosaur. You know, it's not a derogatory term. It just mm-hmm. means that I'm outdated. You know, my methods, my, uh, my way of thinking, my police tactics... I mean, it's gone. It's gone. It's so way behind us. So it's like a dinosaur. Well, the one thing you might like... They don't, ex- they don't exist. We're extinct. Luke and Eddie were telling me driving up here that the arrest process is way easier now. You make the arrest. You fax everything over. You're not sitting in court for two days. I know you hated the fucking court process. Well, so that might be... had pre-arraignment. You could uh, pre-arraign them. You type up a, an affidavit and you could get out. And we had... I worked with guys that were very, uh, you know, color-oriented also. We wanted to get back on the street. And we found out ways of streamlining cases. You know, I had some partners, a guy named Stanley Gam and Lester Rudnick. And we devised a system how we could go in and out of court. We've already made three separate incidents of gun calls in one night, one tour. In eight hours, we would process collars, go back out, get another gun, go back to court, go out and get another gun. Three guns a night, you know, which was a pretty hard feat. Ralph, how many patrol guide procedures did you... uh 
because what, of violate? you on the job. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, no, not violate. How many, how many patrol guide procedures did they draw up after you retired? Like, you yeah. know, because of uh, instances on the job. Well, some of them were like uh, unwritten ones. Like I, me and I'm talking about Lester Rudnick, which was one of my great partners also. He, um, he was a bodybuilder and he was my partner. And there was a commanding officer of the Bronx named uh, Anthony Bowser. And he passed an unofficial rule that two bodybuilders couldn't be partners. <laughs> you know, I, I think because a couple of our prisoners, or maybe more than a couple, came in uh, horizontal instead of vertical. <laughs> And he said, uh, two bodybuilders can't work out. It can't be partners. You know, I think it was having a, well, we thought it was a good effect on the perpetrators. He thought it was a little, uh, too many people horizontal. What memorabilia, we're sitting in like, basically a police museum here. What's your favorite piece of memorabilia you got? Uh, there's a lot of them, you know. Uh, well, the combat crosses up there. Uh, Washington's Law Enforcement Award, which is awarded to... Uh, a police officer from the country, uh, Honor Legion Medal, a lot of uh, civilian awards. I mean, I'm proud of everything, you know. This is a, a map of my career here, you know, and uh, a lot of articles on when I made the newspapers for certain arrests. Now, Ralph, you haven't, I told you I was blown away by your house. I live in a small, your walk-in closet is the size of my apartment in Manhattan, and now you say every Tuesday night's your show. Yes. Just give the plug for the show. Well, the show is uh, Street Justice, the Bronx. It's on Discovery Channel every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. <clears throat> and, you know, I'm so happy to have that show, and I'm proud of it, of course. And uh, I have my friends over, friends and family come over to watch the show with me. And I have 50, close to like 47 people every Tuesday night in my living room to watch it. How do we get the invite to come to one of these parties? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you got it now. <laughs> you put me in a position I can't turn you down. So it's going to be three more this week. Yeah, this is going to be five justified tattoos. <laughs> that well, th that's how I actually want to end the show. You're nice Jewish boy, Shalom Society, right? Shalom Society. Yes. All tatted up, like a normal Jewish person, right? All tatted up. Like and a normal Jew. Yeah, you have two, <laughs> two very, I guess, newsworthy tattoos. Give me the one on your hand. What does it well, say? One that crossed my trigger finger says, justified four times. And it's on Facebook Live, so we'll get a picture of that. And the other one, what's the one on your back with the rush? Because I thought that was a really good quote when it was... Well, across my back, it says, the rush was worth the risk. And it just indicates that, uh, you know, I always got this rush from my 14 years. It was worth the risk. You know, uh, I felt uh, I felt good about... I felt great about my career, but I do know I got a rush from it. And I do realize that it was a risk. You know, I, I put it online all the time like most cops do. And no regrets for me because you loved it so much. No regrets. I wouldn't do anything different. All right, we're going to wrap it up. Ed, anything? No. It's just, just an honor to be here. I got nothing. This is it's just amazing to be here with you. Well, thank you again. <laughs> thank Listen, you, you guys. Can, Ralph, Ralph. Is, no, feel, <laughs> when a police officer says that to you, it makes you feel really good. Yeah, like... You know, civilians don't know. When, you, when you're when you honored by your peers, is a, is a really big honor. Well, I'm going to finish up with... I know a ton of police officers, and when I told lieutenants and captains, hey, you know what's coming on my show? I'm interviewing this guy, Ralph Friedman. Like, holy, everyone took a step back. I'm like, oh, I know that guy from, and they named 80 different fucking stories about you. It wasn't like, <laughs> oh, that's the guy that, like, like we had Rob O'Neill on. He's known as the guy who killed Bin Laden. You had 100 stories. Everyone was telling different stories about you. So your career, all your awards, they're still being talked about now in precincts in Brooklyn, Staten Island, Manhattan. 
It's Obviously, the Bronx. Film. So it's great coming on my show. I did love the book. I love having authors on. I love having authors on besides celebrities and athletes, and to have uh, one of the greatest detectives in the greatest city in the world, the greatest department. It's beyond a pleasure for me. So thank you for coming on, my friend. Thank you for having me, making me blush. Ralph Friedman, baby. <laughs> thank you, guys.